0: 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, in light of what Jesus has done for us, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And God was entrusting to those who've been reconciled, he was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you, on behalf of Christ Jesus, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we sinful people like us, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I mentioned, it's a very monumental day for our church and it feels like kind of a monumental moment at large. There's a lot happening kind of all at once. Um, We celebrated our five-year kind of birthday about a month and a half ago, uh, which feels very... Monumental. It feels substantial. Uh, we, at right around that same time, just interestingly, I don't know if this is meaningful, but it's interesting that we, we got a thousand members. We had over a thousand members now. So that seems like something. And then, obviously, at the same time, we, we're moving into this first building of ours. And it's all kind of happening. It's all kind of happening at the same time. And, and I think that it's a moment where we, we have to stop. And first of all, thank the Lord. But second of all, and I think very importantly, kind of remind ourselves of who we are. To remind ourselves of what the Lord has used to bring us to this point. You know, from the very beginning of who we are as a church, we've, we've always said, we, we, want to be people who, we want to be a people who know the gospel, who love the kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. and to live And we want to be a people that live out the mission Of Christ. And we have always had certain values around that that we've used to describe that. We want to be people of gospel centrality, of gospel clarity. We want to be people of gospel fluency, which means we know how the gospel applies to our whole life. We want to be a kingdom family, a kingdom people that understand what this life together is like in Jesus. And as we scatter, we're called to be kingdom ambassadors, to represent Jesus uh, in, to the whole world, wherever we may go. And we want to be people that are committed to the great commandment of loving our neighbor and the great commission of making disciples even to the ends of the earth. That's, that's what we've said from the very beginning, that we want that to be true of us. And we often talk about these behaviors, that we, we have this tool, the covenant wheel, that I think we're going to put on the screen for you. That, we talk about these things of like corporate worship, like being in community with other believers in relational discipleship, like giving. We're in our support the church uh, kind of moment right now, emphasis right now, going to reach the world, to bless the city. We, we talk about these, these nine behaviors that we believe as we are faithful in these rhythms of grace, God will use them to establish these convictions and these values more fully within us. In fact, the beginning of two thousand. 23, we're actually going to do a nine-week series on all of these behaviors, if you will, these rhythms of grace that are just so central to who we are as a covenant people, Who we, these covenant commitments that we've made to one another. But today, and, and really for the next three weeks, as we kind of step into this new season or monumental season or whatever it is, we want to go and look at a text that has really been meaningful to our identity as a church. It's this text, it's, it's been a text, and there's, there's many texts like this that kind of keep finding their way into the life of our church, but we wanna look at this text, and, and we wanna look at it in three ways. You know, We've been in this big overview of the book of Exodus, this big kind of sweeping survey, if you will, of this major Old Testament book. We've kind of read it fast. The next three years we're gonna do a different kind of Bible study. We're gonna read it slow. We're gonna look at this same text three weeks in a row and and really look at it through these lenses of our convictions, through a lens of gospel, through a lens of kingdom, and through a lens of mission. And so today, as we think about this from a a gospel perspective, there's there's three things that I want us to think about as we look at 2 Corinthians 5. First, seeing the world differently. Number two, our, our need for reconciliation and number three, the way to reconciliation. One of the things that struck me about this text is, is that it, it calls us to see the world in a way that is not really natural to us. It calls us to see the world differently. And this is very hard. It calls us to have a gospel lens, to have a spiritual lens. You know, when I was in high school, uh, I, got, I was thinking about this this week. I got asked to be a part of this leadership Group And we went around to different like civic service components of our city. And so we spent time with our city council members at one week. And we spent time with different local businesses another week. And one of the weeks, our, my favorite week, we went to go and uh, be with the police officers, with the, the local police. And their activity for us, I can't believe they thought this was a good idea, but their activity for us was to put us through police training. And so we did this little police training and one of the things that we got to do, I think I was like a 17, maybe 18 year old child at the time, one of the things we got to do is we got to put on some thermal goggles, I don't know if you ever worn thermal goggles, but you know, like heat sensing goggles, and they gave us this training gun, it was like a little paintball gun, but it was like a little handgun, it had little paintball bullets, and then there was the bad guy who was a trained police officer in this pitch dark room, okay, so the The moment was you had to take this little training and you had to go in there and you had to find the bad guy with these thermal goggles now of course as a 17 year old this was like the coolest thing that i could have possibly done and of course being a very confident young fellow i thought man i am going to go and i'm going to get this guy like i am a secret agent in the making and so i put the thermal goggles on i had my little gun i went into the pitch room I mean, I still remember it, and literally 20 seconds in to the activity, I got shot twice by the bad guy. I never saw him. I never saw anything. I couldn't figure out how to use the thermal goggles. I couldn't get oriented to looking at the world in this totally different way, and of course, I failed. I, that All my dreams of you know, becoming a secret agent were dashed. In a a different way, but in a similar way, this is what this this passage is saying. The gospel calls us to see the whole world differently, to to see the world in, in a way that actually I would say is kind of unnatural to you and to me. We regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one according to the flesh. The reason this is so hard for you and for me is in Atlanta, we regard everyone according to the flesh. Like, that's how you regard people. You regard people according to the flesh. So you regard people what they've done, what they've achieved. I mean, even when we get to know people, you know, we say things like, where did you go to school? Or, you know, what do you do? Or where do you live? And to some degree, we're trying to make social connections. But there's another part of that, right? If we're honest, of like, oh, you went to school there. You live there. You're, you work there. You're impressive. You're, you're worth my time. That's how we're trained. That's what we do. We regard people According to the flesh, what has this person achieved? What has this person accomplished? How great are they? How special are they? Now, we don't don't do that consciously, but that's that's, that's, that's how we see the world. We regard people according to the flesh, but the Bible says, no, there's actually a more important way to regard people, to notice people, to see the world. We regard no one according to the flesh. What's really important about a person is not the kind of stuff that you can see, if you will, without the thermal goggles of the gospel. It's not the kind of stuff that you can see with your natural eyes. What's really important about a person is not what you see on the outside, it's what's on the inside. It's their spiritual life. It's their inner life. Jonathan Edwards, famous American pastor, when he first went to his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, this is early 18th century he said that the people there had the look of Christians. They dutifully went to church, they sang hymns, they read their Bibles. He said they kind of had a rote orthodoxy, they, they knew doctrine. But he said, I think we have the quote here, but he said, but their ultimate concerns were not God and his kingdom, but land, and the pursuit of affluence, and their children, we were given to night walking and tavern hunting. <laughs> they just want to go have fun in the tavern. They had an appearance of godliness. They went to church, they knew doctrine, but God was not their delight. They didn't have an inner life. They didn't have an inner spirituality. God was not their delight. J.C. Ryle, his thing is that God's, that God's delight would be the chief end of our lives. Is that true of you? Is that what you desire most? The delight of God, to delight in God and the things of God. Is that where you find your happiness, your identity, your whole being? These people in Northampton, they had no inner life, no spiritual life. But Edwards took to preaching. And he says, as the spirit of God began to illuminate their hearts, God's Holy Spirit began to give them a spiritual life. Edward said as the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of their heart and illuminated theological concepts, the opaque orthodoxy of the laity suddenly became a transparent medium for vision through which they saw the glory of God. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, all of a sudden, this wasn't just preacher talk. It, these weren't just doctrines. These weren't just Bible stories. They weren't just Bible verses. All of a sudden, these doctrines that they'd known, they were the windows. They were the transparent mediums. They were how the people could see God and know God and behold the glory of God. They had an inward life. God started to bring a life in, inside of them that was alive. And the word of God became alive to them as they, through Edwards' preaching, began to see the power of God. He said, a stirring of interest began in the young people. It's interesting that it began with the young people. As suddenly, they seemed to come to know the realities behind the God talk of the minister, right? It wasn't just a preacher talk anymore. It was was these realities of God and the interest spread to their parents. Then he says, among the parents, the gravity of covetousness which had drawn their hearts to earthly concerns, was reversed. They used to regard people according to the flesh, right? They were, their chief end was the land, was, was their money. But now all of a sudden, the gravity of those things was reversed and merchants began to neglect their nosiness and to talk about God and their souls. You see what's happening The outer life, the life of the flesh, got smaller and smaller and smaller, but the inner life, the spiritual life, grew bigger and bigger and bigger. Do you have a spiritual life? Here's the deal. The more regard you have for your own spiritual life, the more you understand yourself as one delighting in God and looking to the things of God, the more you'll see this in others, the more you'll be drawn to the spiritual life in others. But the more that you regard the world according to the flesh, fleshy things, The more you understand yourself to be the graduate of such and such a school or the president of such and such an organization or the owner of this or that, the more you regard yourself according to the flesh, the more you will regard others according to the flesh. But the more you see God, the more you regard yourself according to the spirit, the more you will see other people rightly. We regard no one according to the flesh. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote in his famous book, The Weight of Glory, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the most dull and uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. What Lewis is saying here is we don't see people rightly. We only see people according to the flesh, but if we could actually see them according to the spirit, we would realize that their spiritual lives are moving them toward a glory that one day will be so perfected in God that if we could see them now, we'd be tempted to worship them. Or because they don't have an inner life, because their souls are distant from God, they're moving further and further and further away from God, that they will become one day a horror that we'd only imagine in a nightmare. He then says all day long, in some degree, we're helping one another to these destinations. It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all love, all play, all politics. We regard no one according to the flesh. There are no ordinary people. You've you've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal. And their life to ours is as the life of a gnat, but it is with immortals who we joke, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We regard no one according to the flesh. Everyone is a spiritual being. And who they are, who you are, who I am, who we are spiritually that is, what, that is who we are ultimately. And so I think I would begin asking you, what is your identity? How do you regard yourself? Do you regard yourself according to the flesh? I've achieved this, I graduated from there, I've done this. Or, or do you regard yourself according to the spirit? How you know God, your delight in the Lord, what is your value, what is your identity? We regard no one according to the flesh. And that brings me to the second point. When we start to see ourselves this way, okay, when you start to say, okay, fundamentally, I'm a spiritual being. Fundamentally, what really matters about me is the stuff that no one can see except for God. If you start to understand your whole life that way, you begin to understand your need for reconciliation with God. Edwards wrote, as he began to preach, he says, the illumination of the heart, which brought converts in touch with the reality of God, simultaneously, this is, this is so interesting, simultaneously. So as they began to get a spiritual life, as they began to grow closer to God, as they began to get in touch with, okay, fundamentally, primarily, ultimately, I'm not who I am on the outside, I'm who I am on the inside. As they began to move closer to God, it simultaneously revealed to them how deeply sin had gripped their own lives. He says, they suddenly became aware that their problem was not isolated acts of conscious disobedience to God, but a deep aversion to God at the root of their personalities, an aversion which left them in unconscious bondage to unbelief, selfishness, jealousy, and other underlying complexes of sin. You see see what he's saying here? Okay, okay, when we regard somebody according to the flesh, the fleshy way of understanding sin, even the fleshy person has an understanding of sin, right? And it's this isolated acts of conscious disobedience. And I just wanna say, this is the way most people understand sin, right? This is how most people understand sin. People say, well, tell me about a sin. They'll say, well, I lied that one time, right? I got angry there, right? I stole that thing, right? It's, it's isolated, conscious acts of disobedience to God. Now, if that is your understanding of sin, okay, then a system of penance actually makes a lot of sense, right? If, you, if your understanding of sin is I stole that thing one time, then it's go pay back what you stole and apologize and maybe give them a little bit more and make penance for what you did wrong, right? What he's saying is they used to understand sin like that because they were regarding one another according to the flesh. That's how most people, I mean, go around and ask most Americans. That's how they understand what sin is. I, I did some things that I'm not proud of, but I also did some things that, I'm, that I made up for it. I made up for it. But what he's saying here is when they got a spiritual life, when the Holy Spirit of God started to move in their lives, they suddenly became aware that their problem was not isolated acts of conscious disobedience to God, but a deep aversion to God. Somebody asked me after the first service, what does aversion mean? Opposition, a deep opposition to God at the root of their personalities, an aversion which left them in unconscious bondage to unbelief in God, to selfishness, to jealousy, to other underlying complexes of sin. The closer you get to the Lord, the more a spiritual life comes alive inside of you. This reality should come to you, right? Wait a second, I have an aversion to God. I don't delight in God, I delight in myself. In fact, I'm incredibly selfish. I, I, I typically think of myself before anything else. I mean. If if, if the the first command, if if the command of God is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, okay, and love your neighbor as yourself, okay, let's just stop there. Who actually does that? How many of you actually spend more time, more energy, the the, the posture of your heart is more toward loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, or is it more toward just solving your own problems and taking care of yourself? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. If it's love your neighbor is yourself, okay, how many of you get as upset for your neighbor when something bad happens to them as you do for yourself when something bad happens to you? Or as excited for your neighbor when they get recognized as you do when something... The point here is that I'm making is when, when a spiritual life comes alongside of you, comes alive in you, and, and you know that, that happens in environments like this. When when you're worshiping the Lord, when you're hearing the word of God preach, all of a sudden the the spirit of God starts to open your eyes to these things. And you can't live in this delusion of like, oh, my only sin problem is I stole that one time, but I've also done all this good. No, you you start to realize, wait a second, what's wrong with my heart? Why am I so selfish? Why am I so jealous? Why can I only celebrate others when things are going well for me? And I love the phrase, the underlying complexes of sin. Why am I so greedy? Why do I spend all my money on myself? Why am I so lustful? Why is my heart so impure? When you only regard yourself according to the flesh, you don't have these thoughts. Sin is just isolated conscious acts of disobedience to God. But when, but when a spiritual life starts to come alive in you, you, you have this realization, wait a second, this is a bigger problem. There's an aversion to God in me. I, I don't really love God Like, I'm made to love God. A few years ago, there was a data breach at the webpage, Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison, it was like a dating app, but it was for married people that wanted to have affairs. It was a very shameful thing. And people had gotten on this, you know, like people do on other dating apps, but there was this data breach. And so all of a sudden... All these people that had, that had secretly gone into this very shameful thing, let's get on this secret app so we can be unfaithful. There was a data breach. All that was known. I mean, their, their names, their information, it was all published on the internet. I don't know if you remember that. I do not know anybody that experienced that. It was a horrible, embarrassing, detrimental thing. That There was a data breach. What was secret became known. What was internal became known. And the author of Hebrews says that God knows and judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. God knows the secret things of our life. God knows our heart. And that makes sense, right? Because it's the way that you present yourself externally is not true, right? I mean, you can present yourself in a different way than what's actually true, but the trueness of who you are, the trueness of what's true about you and what's about me is the internal thing, the thing that we can't cover up, the thing that's just there. And basically the author of Hebrews is saying, what happens in the judgment of God is a data breach, right? It's it's all this stuff that we thought was secure, that we thought was hidden, that we thought was only just inside of us is now all of a sudden exposed and known. I mean, what if all the text messages that you've sent were exposed? We could all go look at them and read them. Or how about all the, your money, your, your bank statements? Just all of a sudden, all known. We can know where, what you've done. And those are external things, right? I mean, that's external. This is here. It judges the thoughts and intentions. There's a lot of times, I'm going to be honest, There's a lot of times where it looks like I'm doing something good, but my intention is I hope people see that I'm doing this so they'll praise me. And everyone thinks he's just doing that because he's a good guy. But the intention of my heart is actually not to love other people. It's to love myself. I just hit it really well. What if there was a data breach on all that? And here's the deal. If there was, no one in this room, no one ever would, would have the courage to stand in front of this room full of other people that are terrified of a data breach. Much less would we have the courage to stand before God. Much less would we have the courage to stand before a holy and righteous and almighty God. We'd be crawling under our chair. Edwards is saying, you know, look, the, more, the more regard you have for the flesh, the less you can see these things. You don't see them. You just think, oh, my, I lied that time. I did that wrong thing, but I did this thing to cover up. I'm good." But he says, when the Spirit comes alive in you, you all of a sudden understand your own bankruptcy, this data breach that has happened. oftentimes the people that have the highest view of their own righteousness are the people that are the farthest away from God. And the ones that have the lowest view are the ones that are actually moving toward reconciliation, which brings me to the third point here, the way of reconciliation. It's a terrifying thought, it's a terrifying, it's an anxiety giving idea to be at odds with God, to not be at peace with God, to be apart from God. And, And what people do, I think because we all have a deep sense of this, what people do is they try to justify themselves. This is why we like our little lists, right? I went to school here, I did this, I've made something of my life, I am a good person, I know I'm a good person because I can point to this, and to this, and to this. We have this sense of justice. We want something to justify us. Many of you have heard me say that the justice of God is simultaneously the most comforting and the most terrifying thought you can have. It's, it's, it's both, the justice of God. You know, a few weeks ago, I read the, some of the accounts of the families of the Parkland school shootings. I don't know if any of y'all, it was heartbreaking to read, um, And, you know, I'm a a dad, and I try to put myself in the position of these parents. I I just just can't imagine it. I I can't imagine, you know, my children going off to school and not coming home because of just some heinous, horrible, evil act. And I read these accounts, and, you know, I'm not here to debate, like, the death penalty or anything, but... The, the, a lot of the, the angst that they were feeling was that, you know, one of the accounts that I read from the parent was just the, the, this, the shooter did not receive the death penalty. He got life in prison. And, and one of the angsty things that I read from one of the parents is like, I can't believe he's going to outlive me. There, there was a sense of just so much has been taken away from me. I want some sense of justice. And of course, there's no perfect human justice and I know in a room like this I mean those kinds of pains you know there are some of you that have been hurt so deeply by someone that's very difficult for you to be in the same room as them there are some of you that there is like this kind of hurt and you want to forgive and you want to move past it but every time like you just can't think it just grips you it's a deep cut it's a deep wound and as a pastor, I interact, I mean, that's a big part of my job. I mean, that's a big, I have those conversations all the time. And, and, and the thing that I say to comfort, I mean, the, the comfort that I can give, the only comfort I can offer to a person that's in that position is, look, all I can tell you is we can trust in the perfect justice of God. Yes, this, this world is full of so many injustices. But praise God that there is a God who will one day settle this account. He will make it right. Jesus is going to make all things right. He's going to make all things new. No one's going to get away. all all accounts will be settled. And that's actually incredibly comforting to know that even though this person, you know, even though they got away with it here, God knows. and God is just. The justice of God is very comforting, but it's simultaneously incredibly troubling and disturbing. It's, it's comforting it as, a, as it applies to someone else's injustice. It's terrifying as it applies to your own injustices. And, and when the data breach happens in your heart and in my heart and all is known, this is what Edwards was talking about. He said, when, this, when the Spirit of God became alive at the church at Northampton, And the people began to realize, wait a second, my sin's not just these conscious acts of sin here or there, but it's this aversion, it's this opposition to God. He said their response was agony. They were given to agony until, until, and this is why this passage is so precious to our church. Until they realized that what we read in verse 19 is true. Until they realized that in Christ, in Jesus, God, the righteous judge, the one who will settle all accounts, God was reconciling the world, the fallen world, the sinful world. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The amazing news of 2 Corinthians 5, why it's been such a foundational text for our whole church, is that in Christ, through Christ, because of Jesus, God is reconciling the world to himself. God is making peace with people like us, with broken hearts, with selfish hearts. With all the complexes of our own sin, God was making peace with people like us in Jesus. God was reconciling the world to himself. Now the question that we have to ask, the question, if that is true, if verse 19 is true, the question is, how? <laughs> okay, I get that, I get, I get mercy of God, but, but, but you just said the justice of God is perfect. You just said God's not gonna settle, he's not gonna leave any account unsettled. And so how? I mean, This is the question of the Bible, how? is the justice of God perfect, and the mercy of God perfect? You know, we just finished studying Exodus, as Jordan mentioned earlier, and it was this awesome study, I loved it. And of course, we, we jumped around, we only did 11 sermons, but and, and you, whenever you're a preacher and you try to preach through a book like that, I, I just have all these regrets. I, I feel like I totally failed you, because there's so many things in there that, I, that uh, we, we didn't really cover in depth that we probably should have in one of those things. In Exodus 34, God is meeting with Moses, and Moses asks the Lord to reveal his character. He says, who are you? What are you like, God? And there's this famous passage. God says in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. If you've read the Old Testament, this refrain appears over and over and over and over again. I don't know if y'all have ever seen the, (laughs) the play, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Forum, but throughout that play there's this guy that just kind of walks across the stage randomly throughout the play. It's interesting, it's, it's, it's funny, it's a funny thing happened on the way to Forum. But anyway, if I was gonna write a play about, uh, called the Old Testament, <laughs> I would have this character that comes across the stage and says, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. As you, as you read the Old Testament, to understand the Old Testament, that refrain, it just comes up over and over and over again. How is this, the same God, the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquity of sins, and yet will no means clear the guilty? How, how is his perfect mercy and perfect justice on display at the same time? And of course, there's no resolution in the Old Testament. It only comes in the New And the answer, of course, is through the greatest act of love that there has ever been. And it's described in verse 21, for our sake, because God loved people like us, for our sake. God had this great rescue plan for our sake. Because God loved his people, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. God's reconciling plan, God's rescue plan, was to send his son, the second person of the Trinity, who was fully God, and and God sent him to become fully man. Fully God and fully man. And this son Jesus, how he lived on earth, was in perfect harmony, perfect righteousness of the Father. If there was a day to breach on the heart of Jesus, it would only come out perfect delight in his father. It would only come out righteousness. It would, it would only come out the echo of peace and love and purity. That was always in the heart of Jesus. He lived on this earth in perfect communion with his father. There was no shame. There was no embarrassment. There was only righteousness. I love to think about this. The fellowship that Jesus had with his father. I love the descriptor of father and son. You know, I, I am blessed. I know this is not true of everybody, and so I, I don't at all take this for granted. I am so blessed to have an awesome relationship with my dad. I love my dad. My dad called me yesterday and he left a voicemail. And he said, just want to call the greatest son in the world, tell you I'm proud of him. My dad does that all the time. You know, I was, a few years ago, My dad was, it was my dad's birthday. I tried to call him to tell him happy birthday. I couldn't even tell him. He was just like, I'm so, I love you so much. I'm so proud. My dad loves me. He delights in me. I'm a son that he delights in. And I feel that. It's the greatest feeling. And it's given me enormous just, life and vitality comfort and now I get to experience on the other side I mean I have these three amazing kids that I just love and delight in and treasure oh I am so proud of them I mean I I, I'm annoyingly proud of them last week Rayner, he scored like the winning touchdown for his little football team and I've been telling I mean you probably already heard the story I've been telling it all week long I'm so proud of him because he, he, he loves it, he works so hard. I, I, I am a dad that delights in his boys and his daughter. I get this, I get this. I mean, I get this, like one millionth of this, that Jesus always delighted in his father, and his father always delighted in him. They had perfect communion, yet, yet, for our sake, He who knew no sin, Jesus who was in perfect fellowship with the Father, he who knew no division from the Father, he who knew no sin became sin. Have you ever really thought about that? I mean, have you ever really thought about what it meant for Jesus to take on our record of sin? Jesus who was totally pure. I mean, think of a heart that's totally pure. I mean, our hearts are not pure. Pure but you kind of get it. I mean, like when, when you fall into a sin, it usually starts with like, you, you have a, a little, little version of that sin and then your heart kind of, you know, you get numb to it a little bit and then you get a little deeper and deeper into the sin. You know what I'm talking about? But, but, but for Jesus, it wasn't like that. He who knew no sin, he whose heart was totally pure, he whose heart was without shame, totally innocent, totally free, became sin. I mean, the starkness of it, the, the, the vilest criminal the coldest murderer, the the most perverse person. I mean, the most impure person. I mean, all of a sudden, Jesus, the, the pure one, in perfect fellowship with his father, took on the record of all of these sinners. I mean, the Bible even struggles to talk about it. It's hard to explain. I mean, you know, later on, Paul in the same gospel says, he who was rich and all the blessings of being rich became poor. John talks about light and darkness. Peter talks about the innocent becoming guilty. And the Bible tries to give you some language. Paul in Galatians uses the curse motif. I think this is helpful. He who was blessed, right? The one who was blessed, the one who received blessing, the one who had all the blessing of his father became the curse. He who knew no sin, who had perfect fellowship with his father, became our sin, and the Father willingly put forward his Son. I mean, this is the greatest act of love. It's not even worth comparing anything else to it. I, I, I can't even tell it to you. It's almost so incomprehensible. Love, how do you know someone loves you? You know someone loves you because it costs them, right? How do you know someone really loves you? It's, they're with you. It costs them. They're not just using you. I mean, everybody loves you when it's going great with you. But the people that really love you is the people that run in when it's not going great. When everybody's running away from you, they're running in. That's the person that loves you. The person that's willing to sacrifice for you. The, the person that's willing to give, the person that's willing to inconvenience himself for you. The, the person that's, that's willing to take on your burden. The, the, the person who's willing to pay costs for you, that is the person who loves you. And there is no greater inconvenience. There is no greater running in. There is no greater cost than this. Jesus, who knew no sin, took on your greatest sin, all of your sin, your, your aversion to the Father. And the Father put forward his righteous and son that he loved for you, for me. I mean, why? I've said this before. But I I wouldn't scratch one of my children for one of you. And yet our heavenly father put forward his His son that he loves so much more to, to suffer and die for you, to face the consequences of sin for you and for me. What kind of love is this? How is the perfect justice Of God And the perfect mercy of God on display at the same time, and it is in this, this greatest act of love that there has ever been, that he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him, because of him, through him, we can become the righteousness of God. And what saving faith is, what it means to have saving faith, what it means to be reconciled, is to believe this. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God has loved you like this? God has loved you like this. I just wanna say, it's hard to believe. It's especially hard to believe for Western individualistic, I wanna earn it, I like my list kind of people like us. We're not humble enough for grace. We're not. You know, we like to say, well, that guy needs grace, but me, of course, I've done the thing. I went to such and such school. I obeyed the 10 commandments. I've always gone to Sunday school. no. There's been a breach of data and your heart is known by God. I pray you get that and that the spirit of God would illumine your heart to not regard yourself or one another according to the flesh, but to see who you are spiritually. And if you would, and if, and if I would, then, then our only hope would be have mercy on me, a sinner. And the good news of the gospel is this. That those of us that God should put out, that he should crush, he's called in. That those of us who should be forsaken have been called in because Jesus on our behalf was forsaken. Because Jesus on our behalf was put out because he who knew no sin became our sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if you've been loved like that, if you've experienced that kind of love, that that will totally change you. I mean, if you've been loved, to be loved changes you. I mean, I love, I love being in love. I love like having a family that I love in it and, and parents that love me and my wife because love changes you. It gives you strength. It gives you life. But as much as my wife and parents and children love me, it's nothing compared to this. God loves me. And now I can say as someone that's totally undeserving of his grace that that I am a child of God, that God looks at me with the same kind of delight as he looks on Jesus, his son. What love is this? And here's the deal. If you've really believed that, if you really believe that you were loved like that, it totally changes you. That's why this passage says, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has received this, he's a new creation. The old is gone. I mean, regarding one another according to the flesh, According to what college you went to or what you, you know, have accomplished in your life, regarding, the old is gone. That's small, that's nothing. The things of this world get so little. And the things of God, this reconciling work that He's called you to, this kingdom that He's called you to, get so big. This is why the same Paul can say, "I count it all loss. It's loss, it's loss. It's loss. It's all small. It's all rubbish. It's all silly compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, of experiencing this kind of love. May this be true of us. You know, we've been talking about this stewardship tool. We've been talking about what God's calling us to. Look, if if you've been loved like this, may it all be small compared to the, the things that God has called you to compared to the call that God has on your life, compared to the things that God has called you to steward for his purpose, may it all be small, compared to this surpassing worth of knowing God in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that today you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and eyes to see. We live in a a city and in an age that regards everything according to the flesh. I pray, Father, by your mercy, we would not be blinded by that, that you would give us (laughs) the thermal goggles of grace that we could actually see rightly we see what's real, who we really are, what really matters, our life with you, Lord, our eternal being. And may this impact the way that we live, we treat people, we serve you. May this form us into the kind of community where the character of Jesus is known. work, Lord. For Jesus' sake, in his name I pray.